Welcome to the teaching ministry of Magnolia's First. To learn more, visit m1bc.org. I begin the message with a true story. On February the 27th, 1991, Ruth Dillow was at her home in Chinook, Kansas when the phone rang. And it was the phone call that every mother of a son or a daughter who is serving in the United States military dreads to come. It was military officials informing her that her son, Private First Class Clayton Carpenter, had stepped on a landmine in the Persian Gulf War and had been killed. She was devastated and she went into a time as any mother would of deep grief and mourning. Three days later, her phone rang again. And on the other end of the line, she heard that voice she thought she would never hear again. And it said, Mom, it's me. I'm alive. And he informed his mother that a mistake had been made in the identification of the soldier who had been killed and that he was indeed still alive. And when I heard that story, I couldn't help but think that that must have been a little of what the disciples experienced during those three days. They had seen Jesus die with their own eyes on that old, rugged Roman cross. And for three days they knew he was dead. But then with those same eyes, they saw the risen Christ and they knew he's alive. He's alive. Though doubted by skinics and cynics and skeptics and atheists all over the world, the resurrection of Jesus is one of the most well-documented and verified of all historical events. Really, there is no question that he was raised from the dead. But the question is, what does the resurrection mean? What does it mean for all mankind? What does the resurrection mean for you personally? After all, what does the resurrection change? Well, the big idea of today's message is simply this. The resurrection changes everything. It changes everything. And so I want to unpack that a little bit in the next few minutes with some personal spiritual specifics for your life if you have become a Christ follower by faith. If there has been that time that you believed and you put your faith, your trust, your life, your hope in Jesus Christ and by that faith became a Christ follower, then what I am going to say over the next few minutes applies directly to you. And if you're here today and you are not yet a Christ follower, first of all, let me say we're glad that you're here. You are always welcome here. Your questions are welcome here. Your doubts are welcome here because Jesus Christ can answer every question and ease every doubt. But if you're here today and you're not a Christ follower, I hope you will hear these statements as to what Christ offers to you if you will put your faith and trust 
in him. First of all, for the Christ follower, the resurrection means that he saved us even though we were guilty, helpless, and may I add, hopeless sinners. Here's what the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 4. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and sealed us, seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. And then that wonderful eighth verse, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. The greatest spiritual myth in American culture is that if there is a heaven, that if you live a good enough life, then at the end of that life, God will say, you did it, you made it, come on in. As if there is some kind of invisible standard out there that we can never really see or know where it is, but if we live up to it, then we can earn our way into eternal life. Well, the Bible says there is no such standard. And if there were a standard like that, it would be perfect holiness, perfect purity, a life without sin. And none of us have done that, not even close. The Bible says not a single one, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Only Jesus Christ, who never thought a sinful thought, who never said a sinful word, who never committed a sinful act, only Jesus Christ lived a life without sin, and yet he's the one who died on the cross, not for his sins, but for yours and for mine. He died to pay our debt to a holy God, a debt we could never pay. And we cannot earn it, we cannot achieve it, we can only receive it by faith as a gift of God's grace. But when we do, the resurrection power of Jesus will raise you to new life. A life even in this difficult, sinful world that has meaning and purpose. The resurrection means that we can trust him even through the trials of life. The Apostle Peter spoke of this with some words of warning and wisdom in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 6. He said to those early believers, So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is is far more precious than mere gold. 
So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. That day we sang about when we sang, The King is Coming. Verse 8. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him. And you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your soul. Peter is warning us, life in this fallen world is difficult. It is filled with troubles and trials. And they come in all different shapes and colors and sizes and forms. In fact, some of you are going through one of the most difficult trials of your life right now. I don't know what it is. It may be completely different than what your brothers or sisters here in this room or watching online might be going through. But whatever it is for you, it is hard. It is big. It is difficult. And what you have in common with your other brothers and sisters who are going through very difficult trials is you can't do this alone. You need the Lord. The Lord never promised us that he would exempt us from those trials. In fact, he promised us we would go through the trials. But what he also promised was that he would go through them with us. And that we wouldn't be alone. And that he would even use those trials to refine your faith, to purify your faith, to strengthen your faith, to teach you how to trust in him more fully through the difficult seasons that come to every life. And that even if one of those trials would take your very life, that there would be glory on the other side of that trial that there would be glory in the presence of God. And for the Christ follower, that is the ultimate final victory. You see, the resurrection means that we too have power over sin and death through Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul said in Romans chapter 6, beginning with verse 4. For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Now, I don't want you to understand, Paul is not saying here that baptism saves you. Baptism does not save you. Faith in Christ saves you. But every person who by faith becomes a Christ follower should be baptized. They should be baptized because Christ commanded it, but they should be baptized because baptism is that public statement that says to friends, family, and the whole world, I am now unapologetically, unashamedly, undeniably a Christ follower. And I want the world to know And then baptism is a powerful image of dual realities. Water baptism, baptism by immersion, which we believe is the way baptism is taught in the New Testament. Immersion is such a powerful visual image and symbol. 
First of all, of what Christ did. When the new believer goes under the water, it, it symbolizes, it pictures the death and burial of Jesus Christ. That he died for our sins and he was buried but when that new believer comes up out of the water, it symbolizes the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. That he conquered sin, he conquered death, he came out of the grave. What a powerful testimony. But then it also is a more personal image in testimony. When that new believer goes under the water, it symbolizes, it signifies, it pictures the burial of your old life when you were an unforgiven sinner, when you were estranged from God, separated from God by your sin, when you were destined, if something didn't change, you were destined for an eternity separated from God in that old life. But that life for the Christ follower by faith is buried. And when you come up out of the water, it symbolizes you have been raised by the mighty resurrection power of Jesus Christ to a new life, to a life as a son or a daughter of God. Not that you have merited, achieved, or earned, but that he has given you by grace. You have been given sonship or daughtership of the living God. And you are forever secure as his child. We have power over sin and death because of Jesus Christ. His sacrificial death and his triumphant resurrection becomes ours by faith when we put our faith in him. And our heavenly future and our future resurrection are secured by his resurrection power. Verse 5, Paul said, Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. Now, does that mean we don't sin anymore? No, stick around me a while and you'll know that's not true. We all continue to sin because you see, even though we now as followers of Christ have new natures, a glorified nature, a sanctified nature by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, we also still have the remnants of our old nature, don't we? Our old sinful selves are still alive and kicking and those two natures, Paul says, are constantly at war with one another. But here's what it does mean. Sin no longer has the power to condemn us. We will never again be condemned by sin if we've truly put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And it also means sin doesn't have to control us. That we have the power because of the presence of the Holy Spirit within the heart, mind, and life of every born-again believer that if we live in the power of the Spirit, sin doesn't have to have victory over us. Sin only gains victory in our lives when we give it to the enemy. But if we live in the power of the Spirit, we have by God's grace the power of Christ 
to conquer and defeat sin. His victory over sin becomes ours to claim and in which to live. Paul goes on, verse 8, And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead, and he will never die. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. For the Christ follower, his victory has become our victory. Verse 11, so you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Do you see, because he was raised from the dead, sin's power over us, sin's claim to our lives and our souls has been broken by the resurrection power of Jesus. Our sin was paid for on the cross, and his authority, his ability to pay for our sin was validated and verified by the resurrection. No other religious leader could do that. Muhammad can't do that. Buddha can't do that. Confucius can't do that. You know why? They're all dead. They're all dead, but Jesus is alive. He conquered sin and death. And because of his victory, he lives in those of us who trust him by faith to do battle for us against sin and to win the ultimate victory so that we too will be raised to live forever. The resurrection means that we have eternal life through faith in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 is known by Bible students as the resurrection chapter. And in a section of that chapter, Paul addresses those in his day who didn't believe in resurrection. The Sadducees and others who followed them didn't believe that the resurrection was real. Not only Jesus' resurrection, but resurrection at all. And so he speaks to them, verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15. But tell me this, he said, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? Now I want you to see what he's doing. He's setting up a hypothetical in order to contradict it with the truth. Follow him, verse 13. For if there is no resurrection of the dead then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all of our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. They are saying the resurrection is not important. Paul is showing them how important it is. Verse 15. And we apostles would all be lying about God. For we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. 
In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. How important is the resurrection? If there's no resurrection, Paul says, our faith is useless. It's a farce. It's hopeless. It's sad if there's no resurrection. But then the Apostle Paul, who encountered Jesus in a personal living encounter on the road to Damascus, makes a declaration of truth that changes everything in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who believe. Paul is saying Christ was first to be raised and all who trust in him will someday be raised as well. Some of you would recognize the name Lee Strobel. Uh, Lee Strobel in his earlier life was a, an award-winning investigative journalist for a major Chicago newspaper. Uh, he was a hardened skeptic and atheist. But one day his wife put her faith and trust in Christ. It rocked his world. He was determined to persuade her that that was a mistake, that it was, it was a farce, it was not true. And, and when she wouldn't buy into what he was saying, he decided he would take on as a project of writing uh, a piece that would prove that the historical evidence and the medical evidence and all of the other things that people uh, would cite was not true, was not convincing. And so he set off on this project and he interviewed a number of biblical experts and historical experts and among them was a professor named Dr. Gary Habermas. And he interviewed him because Dr. Habermas had done more investigative research on the resurrection of Jesus than anybody else in the world. As a matter of fact, he'd written seven books about it. So Strobel, in all of his skepticism, set up an interview. And he talked at length with, with Gary Habermas, and he heard all of the evidence that he had put together, and it was incredibly impressive. He had such a, a powerful presentation to support the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. But then at the end of the interview, he threw the biblical scholar a curveball when he asked him this question. He said, Dr. Habermas, what does the resurrection mean to you personally? And I have to read to you an excerpt from the book, The Case for Christ, which, by the way, has been made into a powerful motion picture. And if you have not read the book or seen the picture, I highly, highly recommend it. Here's a quote from his book that relates the reply of Dr. Gary Habermas. Quote, Habermas rubbed his graying beard. The quick-fire cadence and the debater's edge to his voice were gone. No more quoting of scholars, no more citing of scripture, no more building a case. I had asked about the personal importance of the resurrection to him, and Habermas decided to take a risk by describing what happened in 1995 
when his wife, Debbie, died slowly of lung cancer. Caught off guard by the tenderness of the moment, all I could do was sit and listen. I sat on our porch, he began, looking off to the side at nothing in particular. He sighed deeply and then went on. My wife was upstairs dying. Except for a few weeks, she was home through it all. It was an awful, awful time. It was the worst possible thing that could have ever happened. And then he turned and looked straight at me, Strobel said. But do you know something amazing, he said? My students would call me, not just one, but several of them, and they would say, at a time like this, aren't you glad about the resurrection? (laughs) As sober as these circumstances were, he said, I had reason to smile for two reasons. First, my students were trying to cheer me up with my own teaching. And second, it worked. As I would sit there, I'd picture Job, who went through all that terrible stuff and asked questions of God, and then God turned it around and asked Job questions. I knew if God were to come to me, I'd only ask one question. Lord, why is Debbie up there in bed dying? And I think God would respond by asking gently, Gary, did I raise my son from the dead? And I would say, come on, Lord, I've written several books on that subject. Of course he was raised from the dead, but I want to know about Debbie. I think he would come back to the same question. Did I raise my son from the dead? Did I raise my son from the dead? And he would keep asking until I got the point. The resurrection says that if Jesus was raised 2,000 years ago, there's an answer to Debbie's death in 1995. And do you know what? He said to Strobel. It worked for me that day while I was sitting on the porch, and it still works today. What does the resurrection mean? It means that life is worth living when he lives in your heart. Would you stand and sing with me? Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know He holds the future, and life is worth the living just because He lives. I serve a risen Savior, He's in the world today. I know that He is living, whatever men may say. I see His hand of mercy, I hear His voice of cheer. And just the time I need Him, He's always... Sing it out, church. He lives, He lives. 
Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know He lives. He God bless you. Have a wonderful Easter.